0: Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done.
1: What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hi, welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott Benson. And I am Ben Boland. Ben, today's topic comes to us from uh, a book, and it's a book that you gave me mm-hmm. as a gift, and this is a strange listening. You may not know this, but Ben gives out gifts on his birthday to other people.
3: Uh yeah, it's true. Uh it's my way of saying thank you to everybody who has been my friend over the years, stuff like that. Uh and also, you know, i will be honest, it's it's it makes it feel like a celebration.
2: Let me tell you, I really appreciate this. You gave me a book. And it was called. It's called "Strange but True Tales of Car Collecting." And it's by Keith Martin. Mm-hmm. And uh, our topic today comes from this book, as we'll get into in just a minute. But you know, I've heard of people doing this before, but I've never known anybody who actually gives away gifts on their birthday. So that's uh, very thoughtful of you. Thank you. Oh, th- hey man, thank I, you. I appreciate it, and our listeners can thank you for it too, because uh, you know we ended up with uh, with some great topics out of this book, and we're going to have at least a couple coming up soon. And I know that there's a lot more information in here that we want to get to. So, uh, so let's dig right into today's topic, which is a, uh, a very strange tale of a, um, a used car deal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's very, uh, it's understatement.
3: <laughs> it's a, it's a story of a used car deal and so much more. Now, we want to go ahead and at the top say, uh, that this gets kind of complicated. So this is, uh, this might have a little bit of
2: meandering. It will. And, and I'll tell you, there's, as usual, you know, when you start digging into this stuff. You know, we find that uh, you know the, the story itself is, is really interesting. All the stuff surrounding this story is even more interesting, and and that leads off in different directions as well. So I'm going to try my best. You'll hear yeah. some paper shuffling going on for sure. Um, there's a lot of characters involved in this that uh, that we'll get to. You know, we'll, we'll introduce them as we go along, and we'll try to. Uh, yeah. But there's some uh, some bizarre twists at the end as well.
3: Yeah, yeah. Let's. Uh, you know what, Scott? Let's just go ahead and start with well let, let's just start with bugatti sure just the bugatti company
2: oh why not let's start with the bugatti company so okay the bugatti company founded in uh what 1909 nine? Mm-hmm. Ettore bugatti how do you like that that was great yeah not bad i'm not going to do that again it's just a uh, bugatti oh that was good maybe i will we'll see how it goes but uh i like to try to take our listeners there ben I really do with my (laughs) accent, you know? Yeah. This is probably one of the very few French words that I'll be able to pronounce as we go through this because there's a lot of French that happens in this uh in this episode. Now all right. As you know, Bugatti was the uh the I guess purveyor of uh is that the right word? Purveyor of um fine automobiles. Right. High end luxury vehicles, the uh the rides of sultans and kings. High performance automobiles and uh and their competition at the time, just to give you an idea, and I'm sure most people understand this, but the competition at the time was, um, was Bentley. Mm-hmm. So, and that's funny. There's kind of a little bit of a rivalry, I guess, going between, you know, the, uh, the Bugatti founder and the Bentley mark, because he said, I believe he said at one point, um, that, uh, he thought his competition vehicles were, were a lot like fast trucks because of course Bentley focused on durability rather than, uh, rather than speed necessarily even though they were fast uh bugatti's main focus was speed and design so he's focused on design and beauty of course and you know as far as design goes um the engine blocks themselves were, were hand scraped so that they, they didn't have to have any gaskets when they put them together yeah that's incredible i mean you'd be able to mate metal to metal surfaces with no gaskets and they would still be operational still tight
3: I mean, honestly, I'm I'm a little bit uh, – I still kind of think it's sorcery. Uh, maybe, yeah. I don't want
2: to sound too old-fashioned. I mean, that's all done by hand. Of course, no machines. But, you know, they did use machining for some of the exterior surfaces of the engine, which is remarkable as well because they had these really kind of intricate designs carved into them via, mm-hmm. via milling, right? Yeah. So unusual. The other thing is that they used uh, safety wires that were threaded through all these fasteners and it was kind of like intricately laced patterns that would, that would be laid out across the whole vehicle – um, that's an old racer's trick, and they still do that. I mean, they still safety lace these things with, with wire uh, so that, you know, if a fastener comes loose, it doesn't end up on the track. Right. But they did that right from the factory with Bugatti. Um, the springs were not springs that would, you know, as the normal cars of the day would have. They weren't bolted to the axle. They, would, they were um, cast in a way that or forged in a way that the springs were allowed to pass through the axle, which he thought was a much more elegant way of, of, uh, you know, solving that problem.
3: So we're seeing, we're seeing this, uh, emphasis on aesthetic as well as performance, and it's more and more, uh, uh, a rolling work of arts.
2: Exactly right. Bugatti was something, uh, you know, even at the time, you know, now it's, it's, uh, it's heralded as being, you know, maybe the, uh, the ultimate collector's car you know these right. are in, yeah. in a lot of
3: circles i guess well, yeah just for some perspective um 1936 type uh 57sc uh atlantic coupe sold in 2010 scott for over 28 million dollars
2: 28 million dollars for a single vehicle now that's mm-hmm. uh, that's pretty remarkable we're talking about you know like the concours level restoration on something like that it's not the right. uh you know the uh, the driven or the barn finder, or maybe it is a barn find. Who knows? Sometimes those are the ones that go for the more money, the ones that are dirty and, and beaten up a bit. Yeah, that's show the true. show the patina, right? But um so twenty eight million dollars for one, which makes this whole thing that we're going to talk about today kind of puts it all in perspective, right? I mean, even w- more the, remarkable. I mean, when one vehicle can be worth nearly thirty million dollars, you know, let's just say that you know it's on the low end and it's worth ten million dollars, right? You know, one, one Bugatti. Um, The deal that we're going to talk about today really does put all that in perspective.
3: Yes. The deal we're talking about today is an international deal in 1964, not just for one Bugatti, Scott, not just for 10, but for 30 Bugattis. Yeah. A uh, Swiss industrialist living in France made a deal with a guy in Illinois to buy 30 Bugattis.
2: So that's right. I mean, he took the whole collection at one time, 30 vehicles he bought at one time, in one in one place, but for a remarkable price. I mean, it's a s- extremely low price, even for
3: 1964.
2: $85,000. Yeah, $85,000. And you think, well, that sounds still sounds like a lot of money, right? It's yeah. uh, $85,000. That converts to, in 2014, Ben, $652,174.84. Now, that's still a lot of money right now, but when you think about this, thirty Bugattis. Now, even at the time, that was an outstanding deal. But the owner, the owner of these cars, Ben, and we'll get to him too, I promise. Yeah, He's another yeah, character. Yeah. He was only asking $105,000 for the whole collection. That's what he wanted to get out of the deal. Now, of course, uh, the guy that talked him down, Fritz Slump, I think is that how you say it? Yeah, Slumpf. Like
3: slumpf. slumpf, maybe?
2: Yeah. Okay, that's going to be a tough one to say, right? Maybe I'll call him Fritz from now on. Yeah, let's get on a right. first-name basis. Well, with him. Fritz, <laughs> he talked him down to eighty five thousand dollars, but I think his initial offer was something like seventy thousand. And we're gonna to get to the details of all this as we go, but right. um man, these guys are they're they're making this pretty big deal. It was an it was an international deal as you mentioned, but it was one that garnered international attention as well because it's not often that uh that a prize collection of Bugattis goes across uh, across the pond. Right. And uh
3: let's get into a little bit of their backgrounds, these men, because they're very different.
2: Oh, they're extremely different. And there's more than one Schlumpf, uh brother that we need to talk about. There's two two of them. I just right. mentioned the yeah. brothers.
3: We talked about Fritz, we also need to talk about Hans. Yeah,
2: Fritz and Hans. Now the the uh these guys boy Ben, I'll tell you, they're not good guys. They're no, not I mean this is weird. They're really not. Now one does treat the employees better than the other one, and I'll tell you about that in just a second, like in just one minute. But um overall, I mean the the character of these guys is not uh not something you would aspire to be. I mean, they're they're not great guys. As you'll find out as the uh, the story progresses here. Right.
3: Please. So, yes, the Schlumps. They are, uh, technically speaking, Swiss citizens. They're born in Italy. Um, they live with their mom. After she's widowed, the whole family moves to Alsace, France. Uh, the two brothers apparently had a little bit of an obsession with their mother. Just to, just to throw that in.
2: Maybe a little, uh, a little something going
3: on, a little, uh, everybody loves their parents but there was a little bit of weirdness
2: okay got it yeah some mommy issues
3: yeah maybe okay. that's the best way to say it um in 1935 they founded a company that would produce spun woolen products uh, you know and during the Nazi invasion of France uh, they're expanding their business and they start to become very very wealthy especially
2: after World War II. yeah wealthy enough that uh, the Fritz, who love cars right from the very beginning, uh, you know, they're in the textile business, they're doing well, he's finally able to um, s- secure, I guess, a, uh, a vehicle that he's always wanted to have, and that was a Bugatti, because uh, that Alsace region that you mentioned, that is the HQ for Bugatti. So likely he was seeing all these cars being turned out of the factory. And, you know, he wanted one of these since he was very, very young, and was finally able to get one, so he bought a Bugatti Type 35B just before the Nazi invasion of France.
3: Right. Uh, he also began expanding this Bugatti collection. Uh, you know what? With the help of Hans. Yeah. As well. Um, they, so they collectively began expanding this collection. Uh, the 30 Bugatti's in wanted to buy in 64 were not the first batch of Bugatti's they have purchased.
2: No, exactly right. And you know what? When, when we get to the 1960s, because we're still a little bit prior to this, but yeah. we're still in the wartime, I guess. And I want to mention, um, the way that these brothers treated their employees. Yeah, it is important. It was dramatically different in the way that they treated them. Now, again, overall, they're both not great characters, as we'll find out as we go through this whole story. But they did manage people in extremely different ways. Now, Fritz, I guess, eh, this is strange uh, once you get to the end of the story, but you'll find out that Fritz was probably, you know, the more generous of the brothers, I guess. He was he was the nicer of the two. Uh, he was generous to workers. He, he often gave them, you know, allowed them to take trips or provided them with trips. Um, he installed employee, an employee theater. Uh, he even also would drive expectant mothers to the hospital in his own personal car. So that's the kind of guy he was. He was just a, a nice, um, I guess caring boss, right? You know, he would, uh, he was personable. He knew that happy workers make better workers. Exactly right. He was personable, and his brother Hans was anything but that. Now, yeah. he, this guy was the, uh, the kind of cold, cold brother. He was the, uh, he's a former banker. Um, he paid the mill workers very poorly. He would dock them 15 minutes off their pay if they were late, or (laughs) if they signed out a minute or two early, um, he would do the same thing. He would dock them 15 minutes of pay. Yeah. Um, and he often would not pay bonuses or incremental raises like he was supposed to. So, this is out of the two of them, he treated the workers on the, uh, on the bad side, I guess, versus the two, you -hmm. know, compared to the two of them, I suppose. Right. And, uh, they were
3: single-minded. They were driven. Uh, their business was still expanding, uh, as was their car collection.
2: Exactly right. And so we get, you know, we're into the, the mid-1950s, let's say. Okay. And we're just past the war, and what's going on is, you know, that um, well, it's, times are tough in France, of All course. around. All around, everywhere, all over Europe. And, uh, and a lot of people, though, are at this point deciding that um, they do want a new car because they're, they're at the point where, you know, it's possible. Because we're talking the mid-1950s, not right out of the war. So it's just after... And some of these new designs are coming out, and people are deciding that they want to get rid of some of these classic 1920s and 1930s cars. They don't really hold as much value as they they did before. You know, people, they were a brand-new car at the time. People want to get rid of them. And, of course, they're not to the point yet where they're really collectible or antique or anything like that. Right. So they're taking advantage of this, and they start buying up all the cars that they can and not just Bugattis because Bugattis were their main focus, as we'll find out. Right but they start buying up cars of all makes and models and they're buying them in secret.
3: Ah, I'm so glad you said that. Who doesn't love a good secret, except of course the people who are having secrets kept from them. Uh, they had what became known as the schlumpf obsession, a single mindedness that applied to both their issues with their mother and their top secret, uh, car collection. Scott, they, uh, Over their years, they acquired 400 items. And they're called items because it would be vehicles, chassis, and engines. Uh, And they eventually, as we'll find, converted a wing of one of their spinning mills into a shop to maintain and restore these vehicles. Uh, Up to, and we're not sure how many, but up to 40 carpenters and saddlers and master mechanics were working on this. But the thing was they were under an ironclad confidentiality agreement. Yeah, they
2: made them sign a confidentiality agreement that would state that they're not to talk about anything that happens in the mill at any time. Mm-hmm. And what's happening, that they're gathering this collection, this, this growing collection. And, uh, and so they had, here's the deal, they had four mills to begin with that were operational with employees and they're turning out woolen products, right, in the textile industry. They bought the Mulhouse property, which also contained the mill, you know, the Mulhouse mill. Yeah, uh, which was going to be their their museum. They knew this right from the very beginning. It was never intended to be a, a functional woolen mill, even though that's what it was in the past. But uh, mm-hmm. they they bought it as that. And of course, you know, they didn't raise any eyebrows doing that because they're doing well. They're making a lot of money. And what was going on though is this is where they were secretly hoarding away all of these cars that they bought. I mean, this is a massive, massive place, huge. Like I think I saw what was it two hundred thousand square meters? Is yeah. the is the floor space in this thing? It's it's enormous. Right you measure that in acres when you when you talk about it in size. Oh yeah, it's
3: 19,000 square meters, 200,000 square feet. It's
2: gigantic. It's a yeah. huge place. Now, of course, it's all broken up, you know, the different rooms and everything, but they eventually get rid of all those walls and they support it so that it's one giant showroom right with the uh with these
3: I guess units of different cars and the walkways between them on the, these you know, iconic red tile walkways with names like Schlumpf Avenue and you know Bugatti Way.
2: Yeah, something that is a you little know, clever—the way that they can figure out where they are because this place is so big. They had to have kind of a grid system laid out so they could, you know, determine where certain vehicles go and you know how to get to different places. You know, it's it's a it's something you have to do when you get that big. I suppose you have to organize the uh, the exhibit, and they were restoring these cars, as we said, in secrecy. In the shop, in that in that part of the museum, or the uh, I say museum now, but it was a mill at the time. Right in that part of the mill, that uh, they still have, they still have that in the uh, in the museum that exists today.
3: And they especially don't want other employees to find out about these excess uh, these excesses. So let's go ahead and bracket the adventures of the strange, single minded Schlumpf brothers for now, and follow. Uh, follow a very important letter, telephone call across the Atlantic, uh, where it reaches, you know, of course, uh,
2: John W. Shakespeare. Sure. And you know what? Prior to this, you, just before we, yeah. just before we get to this, uh, during the summer of 1960, so we're talking about two years before this letter that you're talking about went across.
1: Go to blinds.com for up to 45% off and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for up to 45% off at blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.
2: Um, during the summer of 1960, they had acquired 10 Bugatti's, uh-huh. including two Type 57s and one Type 46 5 liter model. And they also found, and so, you know, I mentioned they had other makes and models yep, too, yep. right? They also found three Rolls-Royces, two Squeezes. Oh, here's my favorite. And a Tatra. <laughs> yeah. Unusual, huh? Yeah. Strange that they had that, right? Now, by the end of summer in 1960, they already had the collection grown to 40 cars. Now, 40 cars doesn't sound like a huge collection or anything. It's big. Yeah. But wait till you hear the numbers that we get to at the end of this podcast. It's, it's a lot in- of wampum. It's incredible. It is. A lot of wampum for that. <laughs> so, all right in addition to that they're also buying up racing cars sure ferrari sold them one i think mercedes Now this is weird the companies the factories are selling them like direct like the old cars direct like and this is weird they're selling them old cars spare parts from their collections mercedes was doing this ferrari was doing this gordini was doing this i mean they're selling them like 10 old racing cars in one sale um so this guy is gathering or these guys i should say are gathering This amazing amount of vehicles and racing cars. They're, they're just regular motoring cars. Oh,
3: they're getting a little crazy because in, uh, the, I was, I guess I was being a little bit, uh, too liberal with the poetic license there. Here's what starts happening. Uh, Fritz sends out a boilerplate letter to all the Bugatti owners on the Bugatti club register and says, I will buy all of your cars. All of your cars. That's a little crazy.
2: That is a little crazy, and I'm sure that a lot of them raised their eyebrows when they saw this and thought, "What's up?" Because, um, you know, people are pretty protective about stuff like this. They don't want the entire collection to go to one person in one place. Right. And, and a lot of people like it when you know there's uh, these cars are in the hands of. Enthusiast. Yeah, he's like a car hoarder. He, yeah, that's great, man. You know, I'm glad you said that. He's like, he's like a car hoarder. I mean, this guy is just, you know, the more he can get, the better. And he doesn't even know what he's going to do. He has no real use for them other than to display them. I mean, that's his grand vision is that he's going to display them. So he's got this idea early on and, you know, probably in the mid 1950s that he wants to create this museum that's going to be of a, a grand scale and it's going to feature his favorite mark, which is Bugatti, but it's also going to have hundreds of other makes and models that are right. restored to museum condition.
3: And now let me say, let me say, I know it sounds like we're giving this guy a hard time, but uh, w- one huge advantage of this kind of single minded obsession, this drive that I respect is that that kind of tenacity makes people successful. Scott, in 1962, he bought nearly 50 Bugattis, right? In 1962.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. Like, and that's yeah. that's when he started. Now, that's 50 cars from different places, you know, right. all over the place. He's True. amassing them, right? So not 50 in one shot or anything like that, but it takes a lot of work to put together 50 cars you know car deals Individual deals exactly yeah. right for cars of this this caliber as well and we're talking about racing bugattis uh you know the i guess we'll just call them street bugattis for lack of better way to say it but you <laughs> know the Gatties. yeah you know the the cars that you would just drive around on your estate or something like that right. Right? around town in london maybe yeah and then
3: in the spring of 63 something really impressive happens
2: yeah he acquired 18 of Bugatti's personal cars. So the ones that uh, you know Bugatti himself drove or used on the uh you know at the headquarters because you know that company's going through some hard times uh I guess starting in the when is it like in mid nineteen fifties, I think, you know. Uh the the old man's gone. He's passed away at that point. And um you know the company's on a down downward slide, but he's still has all these personal cars that are available and Fritz knows this and of course he goes for all eighteen of them. Crazy stuff. Yeah, I mean that's and that, those have got a history too, mm-hmm. which is yeah. really nice. I mean, so you yeah, say like, these are these are owned by the owner of the company, like the coup Napoleon, and uh, there
3: there are so many h- historical masterpieces at this point in the Schlumpf collection, which is still again secret because he's not being exactly uh, like he's not saying. I am building an empire of museums, you know? Yeah,
2: and all the time, you know, that we're talking about right now between 1962 and, and 1963, 64, there's this correspondence that's going on between uh, between Fritz Schlumpf and John Shakespeare. Ah, yes,
3: because collector John Shakespeare of Centralia, Illinois, says, you know, I can give you this collection, 30 Bugattis for, what do we say, Scott, 105,000? 105, yeah, 105,000. Let's talk a little bit about... uh john before we move on his father was william shakespeare not the one you're thinking about <laughs> but the, unless you're a fisherman right unless you're a fisherman mm-hmm. then you are correct you are thinking of the inventor of the level winding fishing reel he earned um let's see what we already said wampum he earned mountains of moolah off this
2: invention mm-hmm, that's exactly right and he made a boatload of money on other types of fishing tackle as well. I think he even introduced uh, fiberglass rods and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, I found out, Ben, that it wasn't just that. I think he also had other patents as well. I want to say that um, he held patents on camera equipment and even a carburetor at one point. So, you know, his dad, you know, William Shakespeare, was an inventor. And, of course, this guy is born with a silver spoon in his mouth. You know, he's very wealthy right from the very beginning. He's sent to Harvard and stuff. Yeah, exactly right. But he he wasn't just... uh, he wasn't just kind of this, uh, this millionaire playboy type guy. He also had some business, business interests. Yeah. He had an
3: import car dealership.
2: Exactly right. Yeah. I think he, uh, he opened up, what was it, uh, the name of that place? It was, um, he, it, he eventually named it Shakespeare Motors. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it, and it, uh, you know, housed things like Ferraris and, and Porsches and which he also raced on the weekends. Right.
3: Yeah. He was not, um, just idle with this. He was often described as, A sportsman because he would race sports cars. He was also a skier and a skydiver.
2: He's a gentleman racer. Now, the thing is that I heard that he had this collection that, of course, you know, he was bitten by the, uh, the Bugatti bug as well, right? So he, he obviously had this big collection. He had 30 Bugatti's of, of all different types and makes and models and conditions. And in fact, he even had one. You know, I'm going to mention this one that I think we really need to talk about. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Um, tell you what. Let me back up for just one second because I do want to say that the reason that he's getting rid of all these, you know, we need to lay this out right now. Oh, that's a good point. The reason they're getting rid of these is he said he was falling out of shape, you know, like physical shape, because the time that was involved in keeping these cars in opera, you know, operational condition. And you said that he's like a water skier and um, what a skydiver and right. he's an active guy. He likes yeah. to do things, right? But he finds himself more and more tied to the, uh, tied to the shop or you know dealing with just handling the day-to-day stuff that goes with owning cars like this, um, you know, the maintenance and all the, uh, the the other drudgery, I guess, that goes with owning 30 Bugattis, if there is drudgery in owning 30 Bugattis, Ben. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> but anyway, see, he, um, he decides that, you know, he's falling out of physical condition, you know, physical shape, and it's time for them to go. So he, he puts this, you know, just, I guess, abstract, uh, maybe not so abstract price on these things of $105,000, Uh, I guess that's what exactly what he had paid for all of them combined. Yeah, it was like he was breaking even. Yeah, because he got a great deal on some of these. And the one in particular that everybody points to is, uh, is a Type 41 Royale Park Ward limousine. Less, only six were made. Uh, The
3: chassis alone sells for around $30,000 in 1927. Yeah.
2: Now, this is the 1960s when
3: he's getting it, right? Right. And there's something very, very important about this. Oh, I'm sorry.
2: 1956 when he bought it.
3: Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Uh, So mid-50s. There's something very, very important and unique about the Royale. What's that? It's, uh, oddly enough, a prize symbol on the radiator cap. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. a silver elephant sculpted by Rembrandt Bugatti, the brother of the founder of
2: Bugatti, Ettore. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So there's that. Mm-hmm. There's also just, the, there's only six of these things in the entire world, right? That's another thing. So how, how, how much did he get it for? He paid $10,000 in 1956. Now that's still a lot of money back then, right? I understand that, but yeah. it's a heck of a deal. Yes, sir. I mean, really a great deal. And it's a prize car. Even back then, of course, you know, everybody knew that this thing is worth a lot of money. Um, this is just a guy that just wants to get rid of his collection. He's just done with it. You know, he's had, he's had enough. And I know that people can probably, uh, sympathize with this a bit that, you know, like you've got a project car or whatever and you decide at at some point you're just done and you're like, I'm just going to take a fair offer for it and be done with it. I'm not going to try to get, you know, squeeze any more money out of it, get, you know, everything that I possibly can. It's just, I just want to, I want to be done with it. I want to move on to something else. And that's exactly what he was doing. So once he starts his correspondence with, with Fritz, um, you know things are not quite smooth i mean it's a little bit rocky because they get a little bit uh, a little bit testy with each other right yeah
3: they have uh, about a year of wrangling and both of them let's think about this both of them are quite well off both of them are probably used to being uh treated like uh treated like a king in a lot of ways you mm-hmm. know both of them probably don't hear the word "no" very often,
2: and they're dealing with a liaison. So there is somebody in between them that is making, you know, these uh, these connections. Uh, it's right. not it's not like they're talking directly to the other person. And I think that has I think that factors into this a little bit. It's a little easier to be more abrupt with somebody in between, with an intermediary. Yeah, Bob Shaw of Wheaton, Illinois. Mm-hmm. That's one, and there was another one, um, a Bugatti historian. His name was Hugh Conway. And so between the two of them, uh, they were they were dealing with uh, with. Um, Shakespeare and Schlumpf, and they finally, I think it, it was, again, after how long? It's uh, about a year. About a year of this correspondence back and forth. Um, finally, they got the two of these guys together on a price, and I think that um, it took a lot of wrangling because they had gone out to inspect the cars because uh, Fritz couldn't make the, uh, make the trip himself. He was busy with his milling, you know, his, uh, his woolen mill. And, uh, he was unable to make the trip to, to do this. He was just a busy guy. So he sent, you know, they, they both agreed, um, the seller and the buyer chose Shaw to inspect the entire, entirety of Shakespeare's collection in 1963 and to see what it was really worth. You know, what's there, what it's worth, because, you know, what the seller tells you and what's really there is maybe two different things. That's very smart. So there's, there's some interesting contrast to look at here.
3: Uh, Fritz Schlumpf originally says he'll only pay 70 grand if the cars are impeccable. And then, you know, Shaw comes back and, and reports along with Conway that uh, most of Shakespeare's Bugattis are parked on a dirt floor in a building with broken windows, a leaky roof. Many in a state of disassembly haven't run for more than a year. In response, Fritz, at uh, some point in these negotiations,
2: raises his price to 85000 So isn't this funny? Yeah, because he wants them so bad. So okay, here's the thing. So you know, Shakespeare wants one hundred and five thousand dollars, which is a bargain to begin with. I mean, right. re- it really, truly is. It sure is. It's a fire sale. So so Fritz offers him about two thirds of that, right? Which I guess is a smart move, right? But he says they have to be impeccable for that price. Which oh, that's pretty. That's a pretty hard line to take. They're not. Uh, they're definitely not. They're in. Uh, you know, some of them aren't even running. You know, five of them I think were disassembled at the yeah, time. Yeah, uh, so,
3: restoration, right?
2: Exactly right. So you know, there's there's. Pieces and parts all over the place. And one of the biggest problems um, is that there's a crack in the Royale's huge straight-eight engine block. And Schlumpf returns with, you know, he notifies Schlumpf of this. Yeah. Because he finds it a long way. He didn't know it was there even, honestly. And Schlumpf writes back and says, why don't you just have somebody arc weld that shut, you know, and, uh, and we'll just make the deal happen no matter what.
3: And at one point, uh, Shakespeare said, you know, I could just sell these, uh, bring up the collection, yeah. and then Fritz loses his mind and accuses the guy of, well, that's unfair to say loses his mind. But you know he did. It seems very extreme because he accuses Shakespeare of extortion
2: and threatens to sue him. Right, he threatens to bring legal action through a variety of sources. So um, there's there's obviously some some big tension here, even towards the end of this whole deal. Really? And finally, I mean, finally, I don't know. Again, this is after, well, they first contacted each other in 1962. This is 1964 before all this really happens. But they finally come to terms and the 85,000 uh, stands is the deal. And this is where the uh, the whole train load of Bugatti's, um, I guess, uh, legend yeah. comes about because it's true. It really did happen. Yeah, this is not a myth.
3: Uh, let, uh, let me laundry list just the route they agreed on real quick. Is that cool? Sure. Okay. So Shakespeare, uh, chose the southern railway system and this would transport the Bugatti's to New Orleans, uh, for their ocean travel to, uh, Le Havre, France. Oh, boy, I butchered that one, huh,
2: buddy? Eh, that's close enough.
3: <laughs> uh, and then they also outlined, uh, the routes that they would take there, um, they had to consider because after they get to France, they have to be trucked 430 miles. Yeah, it's a long trip. So they had to figure out the loading order for these cars. As as you know, Scott, uh, and as you know, listeners, these Bugattis vary
2: greatly. Yeah, in size, shape, weight, everything. I mean, in condition, just able to be able to, uh, to be able to make the trip at all. Really, some of them were in pretty poor condition. I, mean, I think that's part of the delay in this was that. You know, Shakespeare was getting the cars ready for delivery. He had to make sure that all of them had wheels, all of them were able to be steered once they were on. So they all had to have steering wheels, um, which some of them didn't at the time when they were inspected. Um, Just all the extra stuff, you know, all the engine blocks and everything that goes along with these cars had to be, you know, it had to be well thought out before they could ship them. And that's the other thing, Ben, that eighty-five thousand dollars included all the shipping that you're talking about. So, so it included the train ride. It included being loaded onto a freighter in new orleans it I included would say no deal shipping is on you i mean how long do you think it took them to be shipped you know via this this freighter you know a dutch freighter from new orleans here in the united states over to france how long do you think that took like i mean it probably took a week then there's also uh you know the 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 truck transportation on the other end i mean it's just right. it's it's an enormous cost and all of that was wrapped into that eighty five thousand dollars that he paid so we do know
3: that on March 30th, 1964, there really was a trainload of Bugattis uh heading heading down toward New Orleans and uh they had to be careful. They started loading them at 8:30 in the morning at Shakespeare's shop and they weren't done until 7 p.m., you know, which to me is the least you could expect, you know. I would I would be mortified if people were hurrying when they were when they were stacking this. Yeah. So the legend is true but that's not the entire story uh before we tell you the rest of the story we have a quick little word from our sponsors this this episode
2: our sponsors yeah
3: us us we're our own sponsors <laughs> we're our own sponsors uh because we have a video series coming out uh that we wanted to mention to you guys
2: oh definitely yeah the uh, the video series that we uh, we shot at the high museum of art here mm-hmm. in atlanta yep uh, the dream car exhibit and Ben, that may just be the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, you know, listeners, it's
3: up to you. Let us know if you like, uh, the video stuff. Uh, now I'll, I'll say, you know, we get our ugly mugs in a museum. We were classing up the place. I'm kidding. Uh, but we do hope to be able to do more of these projects and we would love to hear recommendations from you guys about the kind of stuff that you would like to see us travel for, uh, in the future.
2: Yeah, that'd be cool. I mean, some, some local stuff. Who knows? Maybe we can get a little travel budget out of this and, uh, and travel to some places and go see some things and, and, and do some fun things, you know, with it. But, uh, the videos are a lot of fun to do and, uh, hopefully you like them as well. So if you go to the How Stuff Works YouTube channel and you, know, you have to scroll down a little bit, I guess, now at this point to see our videos, but, um, they're there and, uh, you know, give us some feedback. Tell us what you think.
3: Yeah, we have more stuff coming out, uh, over the next few weeks.
2: Exactly right.
3: And now we are back to the legendary Bugatti journey. So we said that they arrive after what, a four hundred
2: something mile drive? Uh, a truck ride, yeah. A I mean that's ride. that's the smallest leg of this whole journey, <laughs> really. True. I, mean, yeah, I, I kinda I, ignored those. Well, <laughs> yeah, the other stuff, you know. But uh, but the thing is, no, this is funny, Ben, and this is pretty well this is pretty telling, I guess, for the, uh, the character that Fritz was, right? When they arrived, when they arrived in at the mall house location you know there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of people saying well what's going on here there's 30 bugattis being unloaded and driven into that abandoned factory what's going on fritz had an unusual way to greet the uh, the onlookers the spectators didn't he
3: yeah he showed up with a whip just in case There would be, uh, there would be some unscrupulous peasants trying to mess with his cars. He really was focused on this
2: collection. Isn't that crazy? So they, the, the trucks show up and he's got, he's got these, uh, this collection of cars and he should be just overjoyed. Should be happy guy, right? Yeah. He's got a bullwhip in his hands. He's ready to whip people that get near his vehicles there or look at his cars the wrong way, you know, that, that are, that show an, um, an unusual interest in the cars, right? Yeah. So he's keeping people away and remember, He's up to this point, he's been building this collection in secrecy, right? So he's, he's, he's trying to keep it all secret, but how do you keep a, a you know, truckload after truckload of Bugattis secret as they arrive at the museum? Maybe, maybe there's a hidden location he can unload them or something, but I don't know, Ben. I mean, yeah, the whole thing was publicized here in the United States fairly heavily. I mean, because right. how often are you going to see 30 Bugatti's on a train? And by the way, that train, and I need to mention this because I, I forgot to say this when we were talking about it. When they loaded them on the train, you know, from, uh, Shakespeare's property, which happened to be right next to the train tracks. Yeah. They put them on this train and it was like, I think it was three big railway cars that were, you know, um, vehicle transport type vehicle, uh, um, cars, of course, right? Uh huh. And they were completely open. They were, they were not covered. There, there was no protection really from the elements. There was no protection from, uh, you know, uh, animals or or the um, eyes of strangers yeah you know, whatever i mean there was, there was <laughs> nothing and they didn't put anything on the cars they didn't wrap them in any way no the only protection that these cars had that that entire trip from from illinois down to new orleans mm-hmm. was they wrapped the steering wheels in plastic so i guess when they're loading and unloading them they didn't get their greasy hands on the uh, steering wheel
3: well, also they chained them down.
2: Well, they chained. Sure, they did that. But <laughs> I mean, think about the way cars are shipped today, with the plastic wraps and you know, yeah. the other covered containers, and uh-huh. they're very, very careful about it. And here we are with thirty Bugattis being, tra- you know, transported. Uh, well, what more than a thousand miles, probably? If I'd yeah. guess. I guess, I don't know the distance exactly, but a thousand miles via open train containers. Well, here's here's another thing that
3: I think we should bring back into the picture is that all is not well in the schlumpf empire, uh, since the, by the late 1960s, uh, the textile industry in Europe is collapsing as, uh, people, you know, tail as old as time, people are finding, uh, or companies are finding cheaper products mm-hmm. and cheaper operation costs in other countries. In this case, uh, these would be Asian countries. And, uh,
2: You know what else was happening in the late 60s? What's that? They had also gathered 105 Bugattis at this point. Their, their collection had grown to 105. Now, that includes the 30 that he just purchased from, from Shakespeare. Yeah, but they're taking money from their business, not just profits. They're taking money
3: from their business's operation budget uh, to buy Bugattis. Uh,
2: so you remember we mentioned early on that these guys are – I mean, really up to no good, right? I mean, it, I mean, it ends up that they're up to no good. So this obsession of theirs, this Bugatti obsession, uh-huh. that's uh, that's more so on Fritz Hans a little bit, but uh, he's he's involved, but um, and he's supportive. It's right. just it's not his thing. Fritz is really the one that's uh, that is the driving force behind this whole thing, I believe. Now the the problem is that you mentioned they're taking money from the business. It wasn't just yeah. taking. They weren't just taking their own share of the profits exactly right they're taking money from the business that's supposed to be going towards the operation of the business and they're using it to buy bugattis now up until this point though the workers don't know that right yeah they don't um his workers are
3: having a tough relationship with them you know hans was always kind of the bad cop and Mm -hmm. fritz although he could be generous to his employees he wasn't helping their working conditions that much and, uh, they, the strikes start.
2: Yeah, the strikes start, uh, right around, what is it, 1976, I think? Yeah. Because that's when the Schlumpf brothers began having to sell their factories. You know, they had to sell off some of the assets in order to keep everything going, right? Well, to keep their Bugatti habit going. well, they did, but no one knew that at the time. So they also start with some layoffs. Mm-hmm. And this is where it gets a little touchy, you know? I mean, people, when they start to lose their jobs, they start to think, well, what's going on? These guys are so incredibly wealthy; they're not showing any signs of cutting back in their own personal life. Right? How is how is the company failing, but these guys are fine? E- exactly right. And so they they uh, you know as the layoffs progress in 1976, there's a workers' strike, and you know the the enraged employees get this, Ben. They head towards the Mulhouse Mill because they think that's where you know their their main focus is. That's where the brothers are. They're in the Mulhouse right. Mill. And it takes 400 police to hold back the workers who want to go in and ransack the factory out of vengeance. And that's when they discover the hidden car collection. Yeah. They, they walk in, Ben, and they find that there's 600 cars that are some, and they're laid out in a, almost like a museum. Right. Districts of 10 to 20 cars each. It's got three restaurants in this place. 123 Bugatti's and you know there are are all these uh these crazy lamps that they have around that they've restored as well oh, to, yeah. to light the museum so th- you know that's one of the things when you see the photos of this museum you'll notice the lamps in there and um, these were part of the brothers design they wanted to uh to recreate a certain region in france i guess so
3: things go south very quickly yeah uh the brothers declare bankruptcy they flee back to switzerland you know again as we said they're swiss residents and then uh they live in a hotel uh, permanently.
2: Yeah, right. They, they live in a hotel after coming from such you know amazing wealth. I'm sure they're still not doing all that bad. You know, this, this is the way it is. They They've squirreled away some money, I'm sure. But the workers in the meantime have occupied the Mall House factory, and they continue to occupy that for several years. And what they do to regain some of their some of the money is they say, well, there's this museum all set up here, and and you remember Fritz was on the the verge of opening this museum, or at least you know, having the museum complete. I don't know if he was ever intending to have it open to the public. Maybe, right? Maybe he was. But um, they discover this thing, and it's pretty much a turnkey museum for them. It's ready to go. So the workers decide to open it to the public for an admission fee. You can come through and look at the uh, look at the cars, and that's how they're going to regain some of their money. Right, and then. They did this for two years. Right. In 79, a bankruptcy uh,
3: liquidator said the building's closed, and they sold it to a consortium, including the city of Mulhouse, the Alsace region, the Paris Auto Show, and the Automobile Club of France. And that's where they lucked out, because eventually the museum became considered a national heritage site by the French government. So that means what's important about that, you guys, is that if it's a heritage site, it means that the collection legally cannot be exported, uh, nor can it be dispersed.
2: That's right, and that happened in 1981, and they sold it to the National Automobile Museum Association. That's uh, that that consortium that you mentioned, Ben. All yeah. those all those individual groups come together to make this one association. And uh, that you're right about the uh, the breaking it up. That's that's understood. You know, that's uh, that's you can't do that. So now it's uh, considered a uh, what you say a national heritage, national heritage. I call it a national treasure. Really, I mean, it's an amazing collection. But the thing has been there were two reserves as well. Okay, and uh, they have two different conditions, I guess, that these fall under. So you know, reserve collections are in two different places. One, thankfully for the uh, for the collection, happened to be in the Mulhouse Museum when uh, when all this went down, and it's actually considered part of the Mulhouse collection. And uh, they just call it the uh, the reserve collection. It's as simple as that. But this is a group of unrestored vehicles, chassis, spare parts, things like that that um, that the French government has recently put on display. So even unrestored, uh, they're still on display and it's still part of the collection. The second reserve is the trickier
3: one because they were stored in these villages around uh, Malmerspach and uh, they had 62 cars total. 16 of those are Bugattis. Uh, but since these never technically belonged to the Mulhouse Museum, they were not under that legal protection. The bankruptcy court seized them to cover the Schlump's bills and uh, they were awarded to... Slump's widow, because we have reached that part of the story. Yeah,
2: in nineteen ninety nine is when this whole settlement happened. So you can see this goes on for decades. I mean, this this whole battle, court battle, um, but there, it, to settle a lawsuit that Fritz had, you know, he, he had filed against uh, you know the French government mm-hmm. for taking away his collection. I guess you know he right. felt that he was wronged in some way. Right? And they
3: also sued. They were also sued. Both brothers for tax evasion. and yeah. convicted and
2: convicted. They were they were tried in absentia, but they were. Guilty of tax evasion and they were convicted, but they never went to jail. I mean, they never had to serve a single day in jail, but uh, they were unable to return to France. They were unable to return to the Mulhouse collection. They were unable to uh, really access any of their collection of their uh, materials that they collected over the decades. And this had to be just eating them alive. But one thing, like one minor victory that they had was this, uh, this award to uh, Fritz's, well, eventually his, his widow. Right, he passed away in 1992
3: at the age of 86. Yeah, and
2: in 1999, this lawsuit, um, that he had filed against the French government, um, in the 1970s was, was finally settled, and they gave the entire second, uh, reserve collection to Arlette, his widow. And that was, again, those 62 cars that you mentioned. 16 of those were Bugatti's. Mm-hmm. Um, so, pretty inc- incredible that this all happened, but she, then passed away in 2008. And uh, and then that collection became available for sale again. Yes,
3: and uh, while the collection uh, got broken up, that second reserve collection from Ulmer Spot, uh, there's a little bit of good news there.
2: Yeah, uh, Peter Mullen of California, Oxnard, California, I think he has a museum there, right? And yeah. um, he bought a lot of the cars, including six of those original Shakespeare Bugattis, for his museum in Oxnard, California. So... Um, you know, some of those ended up coming back to the United States. Um, you know, this collection was kind of subject to different rules, I suppose. Uh-huh. And, you know, we mentioned that there were 16 Bugattis. Now, I mean, I don't know how many of those went to uh, went to Mullen. I mean, I know that the six were of the original Shakespeare collection, but I don't know the, the total counter. You know, I don't know how to break down that whole collection, really. But some of them did come back, and uh, others were just kind of scattered. But you may remember Mullen. I think he's also in charge of, uh, or he's taking over the control of the Peterson Museum in Los Angeles, I believe, right? Oh, that's right. And a lot of people were concerned that he was getting rid of some classic American cars and he was bringing in some of these French Art Deco cars. Uh, but I think the case is, and I'm not entirely sure of this, but I think he's stocking his other museum with these French Art Deco cars, which we all knew was happening. But the fear is that he was going to change over the Peterson Museum right. to be kind of a similar thing when really it was supposed to be about, you know, Southern California car culture. So Peter yeah. Mullin's come up in our podcast before there's a there's an entire podcast about that yeah so do
3: check it out and I've got to say before we move on I just I, I find this so fascinating Scott the um the level of obsession and dedication you know it it feels like the more we research this story it feels that at some point Fritz Schlumpf decided not only did he like Bugatti's but he didn't want anyone else to have one. Yeah,
2: can I just mention some numbers before yeah, we get yeah, to yeah. this kind of like one last thing that you want to mention? Because there's yeah. an interesting <laughs> twist to the whole Shakespeare angle on this, right? But overall, I mean, the whole car collection, I've got two different sets of numbers here, and I'll explain it in a second. But, okay. but right now, if you were to go see the uh, the Schlumpf collection at the Mulhouse Museum, which is still around, you could still go to do that. Uh, it's a beautiful collection. It's amazing from the photos. I would love to go see this. And I think it's the world's largest Automob- automobile, automobile museum—is that right? Yeah, it's huge. Uh, visit their website. Yeah, it's gigantic, and I really—I think it is one of the biggest in the world, if not the biggest in the world as far as museum goes. But they have 520 cars in the collection total, and out of those 520, as I mentioned, 123 of those cars are Bugattis. Now, again, that's that's Fritz's obsession, as you mentioned, right? But if you consider the entire collection, including the the um, uh, the reserves, the two reserves that we also have now. Particularly the other one, uh, the one that uh, ended up in Arlette's hands. Um, remember the other sixty-two cars. Yeah, that means that the total collection of cars that these two brothers amassed over those over those that short period of time really uh, was about five hundred and eighty-two eighty-two cars total. Wow, one hundred and thirty-nine of those were Bugattis because that remember the other sixteen. So nearly hundred and forty Bugattis. So one hundred and thirty-nine total. That if you look at outright numbers, I looked at. Uh, Bugatti production prior to 1950, and it amounts to about 8,000 cars total. That's wow. all it was, you know, when yeah. when uh, when the old man was running the company, right? Right. Well, if you consider that they owned 139 of those, that amounts to just under two percent of the entire Bugatti production ever. I mean, not including you know the modern Veyron or anything like that, right? But, but of the original classic historic. Bugatti production, just under 2% of all Bugattis produced are in this museum. He wasn't going to stop either. Yeah. He really wasn't.
3: Amazing. So I, I'm so glad you brought that number up because that's a statistic that I wanted to quote and forgot. Um,
2: that's right. You've got something more interesting to lead into here, right? Because have, uh, yeah. there's, a, there's a dark twist to this one.
3: Yes, sir. This is our one more thing and perhaps one of the darker one more things we've done on this show. One more thing. So, John Shakespeare, the son of William Shakespeare, founder of the Shakespeare Tackle Company, was found murdered in his residence. He was still living in Centralia in 1975. Uh, there were a lot of valuables left behind. Yeah. So people couldn't tell if it was robbery. The murder remains unsolved today, but I, uh, I delved into, uh, some of my conspiracy forum places to uh get a closer look at this. Oh, did you? Mm-hmm. What did you find? Well, interestingly enough, uh I found well, I didn't find who did it, spoiler alert, but interestingly enough, um it, I found some people from Centralia saying that there were uh there was a cover up afoot uh with the participation of the police department. Uh John Shakespeare had gold coins in a false fan duct in the in the basement of the house where he's found murdered mm-hmm. those coins weren't disturbed but different pieces of evidence uh from the investigation began to disappear and you can find people saying that they were um that they were shut down when they asked about it a former someone saying excuse me that they were a former employee of the centralia police department
2: and uh and this isn't an accident either. This is not like, you know, something that's being misconstrued as being a homicide or anything because um I, w- I was digging into this a little bit as well. Um I read in a uh, in the May 9th, 1975 edition of the Southern Illinois newspaper uh that I mean, he was bound, handcuffed. I mean, he had major head trauma. They couldn't tell if he'd been shot or bludgeoned. Um it just it was a it was a bad scene all around. I mean, but the house was not ransacked like you would think in a, in a robbery like you mentioned right and there was no forcible entry into the home so was this a friend of his somebody that he knew an acquaintance what was going on I mean this is uh, this is a you know a full 11 years after the deal went down and everything was fine there between the two of them, and, and these guys were in you know the uh, the Schlumpf brothers if you want to try to draw something out of that they were in exile in uh, in Switzerland at the time and uh, you know it's just not possible that they were making a trip over to Illinois to do the deed. But uh, but I wonder what's going on, Ben. I mean, I wonder. Did you find anything? Any other connections? Maybe I found uh,
3: some uh, tantalizing hints. Really? So yeah, the as of 2013, I found allegations that people in the town of Centralia know who the killer was, and that the killer may still be alive. Really? And uh, influential in the town, and they were still alive. Yeah, and they were. um, You know, these are all just. Speculative things from people from Centralia, apparently. Uh, but we have to keep in mind when we read stuff on forums that even if you see a picture, it could be photoshopped. You know, it's easy for people to make things up. However, from a couple different sources I found, uh, it looks like people believe the murderer was a local and that there was some sort of, uh, romantic relationship between the killer and Shakespeare apparently. Uh, one of the secrets that he had was that he may have been in a homosexual relationship.
2: All right. Well, I love intriguing small town murder tales like this. Now, this one involves a multimillionaire and you know the heir to the uh, the Shakespeare fishing tackle fortune, and it's just right. it's an incredible Clearly story. Murdered. And somebody who was active in the community. I mean, he was as far as active. I mean. He did a he did a lot. I mean, he was a sports racer. He you know the gentleman racer, oil speculator. Exactly right. I mean, you know, we mentioned he was a, a real estate guy as well. He owned a lot of real estate. And I don't yeah. know if it was all local in Centralia or where you know was it Centralia? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm I, I'm not sure, you know, how much uh, I guess how how favored he was in the community. I don't know if he was somebody that was likable. I don't know if it was somebody that everybody kind of you know uh,
3: avoided. There are some missing pieces, but clearly he was he was known there and the. My my one issue with the accusation of a police force covering up something is that I I, I read people saying that they were covering it up, but it's also possible that uh, something can go wrong in an investigation that doesn't lead to a conviction, even if like even if the officers are certain, even if the investigators are certain that they know the person. If they can't get the proof they need, then, you know, you have to play by the rules when you're the good guys. So it is possible that something, that something went wrong and they do know the killer or it's possible that the killer was just never found and uh, the case, even if it was investigated again, would lead to the same results. However... A lot of the people I was reading were saying that they thought it was a cover-up.
2: Ah, yes. And you know what? They also have pointed to the fact that, uh, you know, the sciences have advanced so much from 1975 to now that uh, even some of the old evidence may yield some clues that uh, would tie certain people to that murder if they were to reopen the case. And that's an interesting angle as well. We see that a lot in, you know, the, the true crime books that we read. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's it's very intriguing. I, I'm, I'm interested in this whole thing, and I wonder if they're ever going to reopen it or if it's just going to remain on the books as unsolved.
3: Yeah. You know, we will have to keep our eye on it and update you guys when we hear more. But as of now, that stuff I was reading was 2013. I haven't seen any movement on it yet.
2: That's pretty recent considering it's a 1975 murder. It's
3: almost exactly a year to the day since uh yeah and uh maybe we will see some more in the future but let us know what you think about that now we want to go on record here and say that we do not believe the murder was related to the bugattis because of the timeline no
2: absolutely i don't, yeah. I don't believe it's just that an all.
3: interesting twist and as true crime fans we want to ask you guys if you had ever heard of this or if you had any
2: ideas and it's fascinating that you know that out of this whole thing, I mean, the brothers ended up in exile in, in Switzerland, and you know, not doing so well towards the end, even though they were at the top of you know top of their game, top of the world there for a while, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, also, you know, Shakespeare he met a bad end as well. Yeah. So you know, even atore Bugatti, nice. uh, Yeah, I did it again. Yeah. I told you I wouldn't do it, but I did. <laughs> um, you know, even uh, even the end of that that uh, corporation, uh, it wasn't all that happy. There were some, there were some bad times there as well. So, um, yeah, it just seems like all the characters in this, uh, suffered a, uh, a cruel fate. Yeah. It's like a Grecian tragedy or something. Yeah. It is. I and mean, it's one of those things where, you know, you just keep digging and digging and it just gets worse and worse. But, um, I- interesting story. And honestly, if you ever look up, you know, a, tr- a train load of Bugatti's or, uh, the Schlumpf collection, you're going to see, you know, the, uh, the current collection. But, uh, check out those photos of, you know, the, the Bugatti's on the train as they're being loaded on, you know, on Shakespeare's property as they're headed down to New Orleans. And it's a, it's fantastic photos. Really interesting. Not many of them, but, uh, but the ones that are there, it's, it's just incredible to see them all in one place like that. And I think it's incredible that we have
3: made this a one part podcast. You guys, we thought it was going to have to be a two parter.
2: Yeah. You know what? There wasn't
3: a a great place to break in this one. No, No. it's all one story. And plus it's, it's so exciting. I know we went a little over our time. I mean we gotta get out of here buddy. Uh,
2: and as usual there's about twenty things that I need to include that we didn't. So yeah. uh so maybe that'll show up on a nuts and bolts. who knows?
3: Yes, and let us know what you thought about this story. Uh if you have something to uh help illuminate our understanding of the Bugattis themselves, if you've been to the museum, which would be amazing, we'd like to hear about it. You can check us out on Facebook and Twitter, uh where we do read everything. Um And it takes us a while to write back sometimes, but we're doing our best. If we ever build up too much of a backlog, we'll have a listener mail episode. That's what we do. And you can check out all of our podcasts, including some we specifically mentioned, on our website, carstuffshow.com. If you want to cut around the social media rigmarole, look, we get it.
2: We have an email address just for you. It is carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more
1: on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at com. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started
0: Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done.
1: What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here.
0: And I'm Austin Hankwitz.
1: We're the hosts of Mind the Business, small business success stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks.